you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. LAS Studios. In the foothills of Pasadena, near Devil's Gate, is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It's a completely self-contained facility. It's about 20 minutes from downtown Los Angeles, traffic permitting. It's basically the same spot where once upon a time, Frank Molina and Jack Parsons performed their infamous Halloween rocket test. Now it resembles nothing so much as an elite college campus, if you ignore the big NASA meatball logo on the Spacecraft Assembly Center. Frankly, I don't think most Angelinos know what's there. People running the Mars 2020 mission, people running NASA's Deep Space Network. Around JPL, most people dress like you may assume a NASA engineer dresses in 2023. Button-down shirts, footwear that favors practicality. There's also the occasional younger engineer with a mohawk. It's a safe bet that when my father worked at JPL in the 1960s, mohawks were less common. Well, in this episode, we're going behind the scenes. We're hopping in a golf cart to take an exclusive tour and meet some of the folks who are today's suicide squad, so to speak. And who knows, maybe we'll find somebody who's into sex magic. I'm M.G. Lord, and this is L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and rockets. So what you're seeing here are, there are a number of different parts of the Mars Yard, and if you look off to our right, you can see the different slopes and the different types of terrain. This is Nagi Cox. Nagi is a systems engineer and manager at JPL. She's currently a tactical mission lead on both the Curiosity and the Perseverance rovers. Both rovers are working to figure out if Mars ever had the conditions to support microbial life, while the Perseverance rover is also assessing what humans would need to land and live on Mars. We started our day visiting the Gi in the Mars Yard. It's a simulated Martian landscape used by the Research and Flight Projects to test different robotic prototypes. We were in the Mars yard last summer during a severe drought, and the dry, red, cracked ground left me with one terrible thought, that someday the Earth, too, might be an arid wasteland. This Mars yard has been in use since Mars Pathfinder and has grown over the years as the rover fleet has grown and as the rovers get bigger. I first met Nagi more than 20 years ago when I began my book, AstroTurf, The Private Life of Rocket Science. She hasn't changed much. Her dark hair is not gray, and clamoring over large Mars rocks and jeans and a T-shirt, she seems to have even more energy than she did in the 1990s. 
There are jobs and then there are jobs, right? And this is one that you don't feel like you're getting paid for. So what you're seeing here are there are a number of different parts of the Mars yard. And if you look off to our right, you can see the different slopes and the different types of terrain. This Mars yard has been in use since Mars Pathfinder and has grown over the years as the rover fleet has grown and as the rovers get bigger. Sojourner was about the size of a microwave oven and didn't come much higher than my knee. Sojourner, the first wheeled rover on Mars. It landed there in 1997. And now we have these things that are, you know, SUV size on Mars. Part of the reason we had to change our landing approach was because they've gotten so much bigger. During our conversation, as we walked around the yard, Nagi kept returning to a concept she called Mars Time. I asked her to explain it to me. We are on Mars time for the first three months of the mission. We actually operate, we live on the Earth, but we operate as if we're on Mars. So we come to work 40 minutes later every day, approximately. So that's moving almost a time zone each day. Now that gets very hard on your body, and that's why we don't do it for more than three months. And then we go to a modified Earth time. And here I thought daylight savings time was rough. One thing I wanted to know from everybody we met during the day, how did they get into aerospace in the first place? Nagui said, for her, growing up, it was the late Apollo missions and the early space shuttle missions. There was this thing called the space program that back before the days of even VCRs, you know, everybody watched together and they watched any events in, in the space program. And we all, you know, read the newspaper and the newscasts. And, and so I do remember thinking, huh, there's this space thing that brings people together, which was then fed by Star Trek and, and also Cosmos. Carl Sagan and Gentry Lee, right, that that was where I was really exposed to the idea of planetary exploration by the robots. And so for most of my adult life, the astronauts have been stuck in Earth orbit. And it was the robots that were going where no one had gone before. And at the time, there weren't a lot of institutions that were doing robotic exploration. It was kind of reserved in the only place in the world other than the Soviet Union was this magical place called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. You know, it's been interesting because I started as a newbie and and now that I've been here, I'm still I still find it just as magical, just as fascinating. This is a very exciting time with Artemis starting and the humans hopefully making it out of Earth orbit. And this has obviously increased the conversation about what what are the goals with a base on Mars, with a base on the moon. And I certainly hope that we follow the model of Antarctica, where it's a continent that's not owned by anyone, and it's dedicated to research, and we have engineers and scientists there that are working together internationally. We're not talking for a while about any sort of large-scale colonization. It's just being there for an extended time so that we can continue to learn about Mars, learn how to live there from an engineering perspective, not saying, oh, we can now trash this planet. Because in the end, exploration is about coming around to really learning more about yourselves. And the more that we learn that Mars was once more like the Earth, oceans, rivers, the more it reminds us that planets can change and that we need to take care of this one.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. LAS has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Okay, time to hop back in the golf cart. The next stop on my JPL tour was the one I was looking forward to the most. We drove to what's called the High Bay. It looks like a bunch of massive warehouses. But walk inside, up several staircases, you find yourself in a huge hallway overlooking a giant room where all kinds of spacecraft parts are strewn about. Scientists and engineers are calmly walking around, looking at clipboards, sizing up different parts, assembling instruments, etc. So um, we're in High Bay 1. In this particular High Bay, it's a clean room. This is Kobe Boykins. Kobe is the chief engineer of Europa Clipper, the flagship mission to Europa, one of the moons orbiting Jupiter. Kobe's basically the technical authority on all things Europa. And we bring the hardware into this clean room because we want to make sure that we don't take biology to another planet that would tell us, oh, there's biology here, and it's actually from Earth. So we try to do everything in a much cleaner environment than what would be outside. Which explains why everybody on the floor was in full-on PPE. Personally, my first thought was there'd been a COVID outbreak, which tells you where my mind's been lately. I asked Kobe to summarize the mission for me. He said they're looking to see if Europa, with the elliptical orbit it has around Jupiter, could have the ability to create an environment conducive to life. We've seen it with images from Voyager, this moon that has what appears to us, and from scientific investigation, a liquid water ice crust around the whole surface. It's a big ice ball. And underneath that ice is a liquid ocean. And because it's orbiting Jupiter, and Jupiter has such a large gravitational field, it actually can make thermal environment at the sub-ocean, the ocean to the rocky core interface. So this might be one of the few places within our own uh, solar system where life could have started outside of Earth. And it would be a totally different form or type of life. And that would change the calculus in how often life can occur within our universe, within our solar system. According to NASA, quote, Europa Clipper will be the most advanced spacecraft ever sent to investigate the habitability of another world, close quote. So there's a lot of fancy technology going into it, like 100-foot solar panels and an aluminum alloy vault that will protect its electronics from radiation. Kobe happens to be a mechanical engineer. So we found it just incredible, he said, to see something go from a computer screen to actual real hardware. 
Here's Kobe. For the electronics design in in this particular spacecraft, it's just an amazing thing to see how the veins, if you will, of the spacecraft and how all this, you know, these electric signals move from one place to another. And one of the other amazing things about this spacecraft and early on was we knew that we needed to have a way to manage heat. And so we have in this spacecraft, call them the arteries, right? Because I'll call the, the heat redistribution system is the heart and the veins, the, the arteries of our spacecraft. We actually take heat from inside that vault where all the electronics are on, making heat, and we redistribute it throughout the whole spacecraft through fluid loops and pumps that move the fluid around. And seeing that system sort of as a skeleton, if you've ever seen the bodies exhibit where they sort of show the vein, it's almost like that. You see that in your mind and you're like, oh, this will never work. And having it on the spacecraft and actually seeing it, you know, do its thing, and we're going to actually test that later on, you know, next year, is just, it, it's like, wow, this was a brilliant idea that we're now coming, it's coming to fruition. And, and I think that's what's amazing about doing this type of business and, and building spacecraft that go, is that you're doing something nobody's done before and you get a chance to really push the envelope. But for me personally, it's just, what is the next step in evolution for us as human beings? We are explorers. They are explorers. I mean, truly. Here's the thing. When you hear Elon Musk talking about wanting to go, quote, occupy, unquote, another planet, well, something like that's going to require a lot of scientists to figure out how exactly said occupation is going to work. And that's kind of what Kobe and his colleagues are doing. We have the Netherlands helping us. We have the Germans helping us. We have, you know, a lot of international collaboration with our science team. Being able to answer a fundamental question of how thick is the ice in Europa? How thick is the ocean or how deep is the ocean? Could it support life? Is there life there? Right? It's almost like you work on a job at JPL and you get a chance to write the history books. When you start to put these pieces of scientific discovery together, it starts to tell a story about our evolution, not just as human beings or as a planet, but as a solar system and then as a galaxy and then as a universe. We're learning things that are fundamental to existence. My final question for Colby was about what kind of problems he and his teams generally face. Are they mostly technical? What were some of the toughest things they'd encountered? One of the biggest challenges, and I was thinking that about this on the walk over here to the highway, was just about how we team together. JPL is teamed with the Applied Physics Laboratory, with Airbus in the Netherlands, with a lot of other people. And those cultures coming together are different. And how you work through problems is actually different. And so as the chief engineer, somebody that's responsible for the technical goodness, if you will, of the mission, understanding those cultural differences is almost as hard a problem to solve as the actual problem. You know, a bolt broke in a, in a vibration test. So understanding the social issues has been almost the biggest problem as solving the mechanical ones, the electronic ones, the time-space partition part of what we're doing, you know, how the vehicle communicates. You gotta love that. This guy's spending his days designing rockets to go find hospitable planets in outer space, and the biggest headaches mainly are dealing with other humans here on Earth. Aerospace engineers, they're like everybody else. After the break, it's back in the golf cart for one more stop. Destination, the edge of our solar system.
All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. My tour of JPL wouldn't be complete without talking to two women whom I just totally admire. First, I had a quick chat with Suzanne Dodd in her office. One table was covered with Voyager memorabilia, like pins and bookmarks, because Suzanne is the project manager of the Voyager mission. My career is now bookended, starting on Voyager and likely ending on Voyager. First job out of college as a young engineer and likely going to finish as the, the project manager of that same project. So it's, that's pretty remarkable and pretty special. Suzanne said that Voyager actually inspired her to work at JPL. It is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Voyager is the only spacecraft that's gone by Uranus or Neptune to this day. So I worked on the Uranus and Neptune encounters. They were for the first six years of my engineering career. And after the Neptune encounter, the mission was transferred into an interstellar mission. So it was, it transferred from being a planetary mission to being a mission about the heliosphere. And I think the legacy of how it's touched the whole world is probably Voyager's greatest achievement. Not just the science discoveries, which there are hundreds and hundreds of, but just making the excitement of space exploration and being able to capture the world's attention for that. JPL has changed a lot since Voyager's launch 45 years ago. Suzanne said she now sees more women in the engineering field, especially in leadership positions. What I really like and what I find kind of special is a woman project manager with a woman project scientist. That combination you don't see much of, and I've now experienced that twice in the sense that new star Fiona Harrison at Caltech is the principal investigator. So she and I were the management team, she on the science side, me with the engineering side. And on Voyager now, Linda Spilker is basically our acting project scientist, and then I'm the project manager. As luck would have it, Linda Spilker was our next stop on the tour. Like Suzanne said, she's the project scientist on Voyager. But before that, she was the project scientist on Cassini, the first spacecraft to orbit Saturn and to sample an extraterrestrial ocean. Linda and I are about the same age. We bonded earlier over our love for Robert Heinlein, the science fiction writer who wrote compelling women characters, often characters who went by their initials. Heinlein was responsible for this Mary Grace, me, becoming M.G. Linda, however, continues to use Linda. Anyway, I asked her how she got her start in the space world. I was in third grade, 
and for Christmas I asked for a telescope. So I got a small telescope and I used it to go out and look at the moon and at Saturn and at Jupiter. And I think really it was at that moment, I really wanted to learn more about the planets and do something with space. Linda joined JPL in 1977, initially working on the Voyager missions. And they said, well, the two spacecraft will visit Jupiter and Saturn. If all goes well, Voyager 2 will go on to Uranus and Neptune. And when I heard about that and remembered looking through my telescope at, at Jupiter and Saturn, I thought, sign me up. I want to go to explore these places that no one has visited before. So Linda planned her life around Voyager, even down to when she would start a family. Well, I tell my daughters that their births are truly based on the alignment of the planets. Because when I was working on Voyager, I noticed there was a five-year window between flying by Saturn with Voyager 2 and flying by Uranus. And it was in that five-year window that I had my daughters. Now that's dedication, as well as an example of the practical way that engineers and scientists think. I mentioned I'd also spent time with Kobe, learning all about Europa. She said Voyager deserved a lot of credit for paving the way. One of the things that Voyager did in its flybys, especially of the Jovian moons, is it really changed the way that we looked at the moons in our solar system. In particular, the discovery of volcanoes on Io. Here was a moon that was volcanically active as we were flying by. And of course, Europa with its bright icy surface, and that's the target of Europa Clipper. Ganymede with its tectonically fractured surface. And we started to realize that maybe these worlds weren't as frozen in time as we thought, not as ancient. And it turns out that many of them have global liquid water oceans underneath their icy crusts. And it was really those early Voyager pictures of the moons that gave us those clues that we're now starting to follow up on. And so we now think you just don't need a planet like the Earth in the Goldilocks zone with liquid water. Now you can have these moons spread throughout the solar system with liquid water oceans underneath their icy crusts. And so we wonder, could there be the potential for life in these liquid water oceans? And that would be so exciting, so incredibly exciting. I had one final question before I left. Maybe it was a little silly, but how could I not? I'd gotten past security. I was in the inner sanctum. I had one of the world's top experts on outer space. I mean, journalistic integrity alone demanded. So Linda, I asked. Are there, you know, little green men out there or not? I definitely think there's life of some sort out there. And it's just a question of is there intelligent life like we have here on Earth that we could start to communicate with those beings wherever they are. Each Voyager carries a gold record. That record contains the sights and sounds of the Earth. It's basically copper that's gold-plated because gold will last a long time. Perhaps those gold records will last a billion years, will, will outlast, well outlast, perhaps, the human species. And so with these gold records, perhaps someday, flying close to another star, other beings might find the Voyager golden record. There's a roadmap to get to the Earth if they want to come back here and, and just see, you know, who created and started the Voyagers. So that, that's a wonderful part of the Voyager story. So once the Voyagers run out of power and go silent, then they become our silent ambassadors carrying those golden records. The motto at JPL is dare mighty things. 
It makes me think about Voyager. I think about the Suicide Squad. I think about all the creative, collaborative experimentation it takes to explore outer space. We should probably also think about, I'm sure, the number of naysaying bureaucrats who don't understand, who don't share the dream. But still, all these people come here each day to push our understanding of the universe out just a little bit more. And the next day, even more and more until that motto is realized. Dare mighty things. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of L.A. Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Alea Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. LA Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Alea Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.